Dotnet Rocks, episode 1079, with guest Enrico Camadolio. Recorded Thursday, December 4th, 2014. Hey, guess what? It's Carl Franklin. And Richard Campbell. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. We're still at the fishbowl in uh, NDC London. It's a little people aquarium. It's pretty interesting. And we're not little people. No. <laughs> <laughs> nice pub last night. Oh, it's a great pub. Yeah, I had a great time. You know what is little around here? What? The the, the doors and the elevators and the, you know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Little, not sweet. made for big people. And the coffee cups. Coffee cups. Coffee cups, small. Yeah. You want a glass of water, it's about six ounces. Yeah. No venties around here. No. It's true. <laughs> yeah, everything's little. Little. But, uh, be that as it may, we, I got something really cool for Better Know Framework. Well, so lay it on me. Let's roll that music. All right, buddy, what do you got? Um, I honestly can't remember if I did this before, but it, it's so cool and so noteworthy, it's worth talking about. Okay. So, uh, we all love the HTTP client yeah. object. It's great for downloading any kind of data just, from a REST you know, service. Having sort of a browser you can control, right? A little browser you can control. And we've had several things in the .NET framework over the years that try to do this and do it, you know, with more or less ceremony, mostly more ceremony. Sure. And uh, so that's why we like the HTTP client. But um, uh, Microsoft came out with a version of this I'm looking for when it was first published. I can't see. However, this is the Microsoft HTTP client libraries and it's PCL. Oh, and this so is now really portable important. class libraries. Yeah, this is huge. Yeah, this is really important. When when we were just starting with Xamarin and Xamarin forums and all of this, even right. before Xamarin forums, it, it was kind of difficult to get. You would think, you know, hey, portable class library HTTP client would be wonderful. Yeah, uh, and and we have that. So you can just go to tinyurl.com/pclhttp client. And this is Microsoft.net.http. Uh, so you could just from NuGet say install dash package, Microsoft.net dash HTTP, and you've got it. Nice. Uh, and here we go. This is from the website. This package includes HTTP client for sending requests over HTTP, as well as HTTP request message and HTTP response message for processing HTTP messages. Uh, not supported in Visual Studio 2010 and is only required for projects targeting .NET Framework 4.5, Windows 8, or Windows Phone 8.1 when consuming a library that uses this package. Awesome. However, since it's PCL, it works very nice with Xamarin Forms. Of course it would. Yeah. And that's what I use in my project. Ah, I see. Yeah. You've been working on that project again. Yeah. So there you go. All right. Good find, dude. Know it, learn it, love it. Nice one. Who's talking to us, my friend? Grabbed a comment off of show 1002, the one we did with Paul Stovall talking about Octopus Deploy. Awesome show. And this comment comes from Dave Shaw, who says, Great show as always, guys. I'd definitely consider you looking at Octopus if it wasn't for our in-house deployment system that we all must use. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yes, because we can write our own and it will be better because maintaining plumbing is good for business. <laughs> I feel you're paid, Dave. One thing that really struck a chord with me was what Richard said about rolling out changes with zero downtime. I've heard about people who patch the databases first, then code, then keep the databases compatible with the current and next version, but it never occurred to me to do a post-patch step to finalize the database, removing all the cruft to make it compatible. That's a great idea. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why, but I always just assumed it was something development would have to fix the next release, and that seemed wrong. No idea why something so simple eluded my imagination. Now that you've mentioned it, I will never forget. That's so awesome. There you go. Thanks for a great show and a belated congratulations on your 1,000th episode. Yeah, great. That was back 1,002, so, you know, close. And what's we're interesting, up on 1100. we're coming up with, and this is significant, 1,100, because what? this will be the 1,000th show that you and I have done, done together. Because I was only supposed to do 50. I don't That's know how right. it went terribly, terribly wrong with Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. You're coming up on 1,000 shows together. Dave, thanks so much for your comment. .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Android, iOS, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. We're going to have to throw a proper party for our fans, don't you think? I think so. We'll figure it out. Yeah, maybe at the studio, maybe in Las Vegas, maybe somewhere where we're you know at a conference. Yeah, or something. we're always somewhere. That'd be fun. Okay, maybe we'll we can get out. some sponsors to kick in some money for some uh, 
party things, if you know what I'm talking about. Yes, I do. Yes, you do. And when you say party things, you mean bourbon. Yeah, yeah. well, and, and other libations. Okay. Right. Okay, well, that brings us to our guest, Enrico Campidoglio. Yes, I said it right. Yeah, correct, <laughs> correct, sir. <laughs> Enrico is an Italian programmer based in Sweden with a strong passion for quality and a mild OCD. Oh, yes. Mild? Mm. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that. Not mild anymore, at least. Okay. It's a thrive. It's, it's a, healthy, a healthy OCD. It's getting worse. He took his first programming steps with the Logo Turtle on an Olivetti M24 that his father had brought home. Since then, he spent most of his time in the Microsoft and Java camps, writing everything from console apps to large distributed systems. He's also a speaker who regularly presents on topics such as object-oriented design, BDD, behavior-driven design, deployment automation, PowerShell, and Git. In his spare time, Enrico contributes to AutoFixture, an open-source.net library for automated testing. And worships mechanical keyboards. Oh, awesome. I love it. Enrico works at Tretton37 and can be found blogging on megakemp.com or tweeting at eCampidolio. How's that uh, Twitter handle working out for you? <laughs> it doesn't work at all. <laughs> I should have used the, those three-letter acronyms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like uh, SSH or something like that. Yeah, so your last name is C-A-M-P-I-D-O-G-L-E-O, Campidolio. Exactly. Obviously. Yeah. And now I can change it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, you can't, right? I can, now. Twitter has this limitation. If you had DNS for Twitter handles, wouldn't it? Sort of. <laughs> You could just change them that, up. There yeah. you have. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Just another, just level another of, uh, layer just, of interaction. Um, I'm sure go. I know b- w- the reason why is that because they use the Twitter handle as the primary key. Yeah. In the database. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and, evil. and once you have it. <laughs> yeah, you can never change it. <laughs> and speaking of databases, this is uh, in continuous delivery. This is a topic near and dear to your heart. Is this what you're speaking on yes, here uh, in yeah. NDC? Yes. And not an easy idea, you know. Continuous delivery, you know, application delivery like that is pretty easy because you just replace the code. But I find if you just replace the database, people get really mad. Yeah. So uh, in my presentation, I'm, I'm talking about exactly that point that when you uh, talk about continuous delivery or where you hear about talking about continuous delivery, it's always about the application. It's the website. Right. It's the, the, the REST API. is the service that's in the cloud. That's what you deliver continuously, right? Right. And as you said... It, the application is easy to deploy. You just you know deploy the new binaries right over wherever it's already there, yeah. and you're done. As long as, of course, you didn't break anything in, sure. the, in the new binaries. Now, with databases, it's a little different. And I'm talking about relational databases, right. not, not NoSQL. So relational databases, they have a key difference, and that lies in the data. Yeah, they have data. They have data. <laughs> and depending on where... Funny are the, that way. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Actually, I had, a, I had a slide. I didn't put it in. Uh, do you know the, the internet meme, uh, all your base are belong to oh, us? Yeah. All your base are belong to us. Yes, yeah. I had this slide where with that picture, and I said, you know what we don't, you know what we don't talk about when we talk about continuous delivery? All your databases. <laughs> <laughs> then, I t- then I took it out as, I guess, too cheesy. Yeah. Anyway, and depending on where you are deploying to, you might not want to lose that. Of course, if you're deploying to a test environment, that might be okay to just lose whatever was before right. the, the latest deployment. But if you're going to deploy to production, which is the whole point of continuous delivery, then you have to find a strategy for how you're going to keep that data during the migration. Right. And there are a couple of different ways to, to do that. I don't know if we, we start talking about that or uh, do we start sure. talking about something else? Yeah, absolutely. What are the strategies that you have uh, that you talk about for deploying databases through continuous delivery? Okay, so l- if you start talking about this, the, about keeping this this data, mm-hmm. when you are deploying to production, everything that's happened bef- since the last deploy and the new one, you want to keep it, of course. So yeah. there are a few different ways you can do it. One way, which is kind of the lower lower hanging fruits of it, that you take a deep a backup of whatever you have. Mm. Currently in, in production, mm. you deploy the new database mm. and you basically restore from the transaction log and you replay those transactions mm-hmm. on the new tables, assuming they're, they haven't changed, of course. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's one way. Of course, that's not, it's not feasible every time because depending on the size of your database. It could be hours. Exactly. That backup could be long. And during the, in the meantime, the database can't always accept new connections. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you, you can do that, especially if you have requirements for uptime. When you're talking about deploying a new database, you're 
you're talking about schema. Yeah, schema and you're changes. Mostly schema changes, but you're also maybe just sort of the seed data, you know, like your list of zip codes and things like that and countries. And yeah, exactly. That's the, the exactly. So yeah. when you deploy a new schema, you might, it depends what you have changed. Mm. If, if you change only the schema or you even added new tables with new reference data or static, static data. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, well, whatever it is you are changing, you want to basically migrate the database to this new state. And the classic problem we have too is that, you know, when we're in, in development and testing where you, we have all sorts of crazy data in there that we don't want our customers to see Excellent. or have access to. So you have to take that stuff out and then move the schema over just the schema in the, the core tables, as you said. Exactly. Yeah. So there is one way. The, another way you can do it is that by having those so-called blue-green deployments. Okay. Now, blue-green deployments is a fancy. Is a fancy. It's it's a nice way, of, a nice word of itself. We could just not say it all day long. And right. blue-green, blue-green deployments, everybody will be like, "Whoa, what's that?" <laughs> We're doing something smart. <laughs> something smart, but it's really really simple. You have two exact copies of your uh, production environment. Okay. You just call them one. There are one blue and one green. Okay. Doesn't matter which one is which. You deploy the new version of your application and database to the green, say. Right. You keep blue. As it currently is. Okay. Yep. Once you deploy this complete, you just switch your user to the green environment. Yeah. You don't touch the blue one. Right. If you uh, if you find that there is a problem with the deployment, you roll back to blue. You just point them back to blue, right? Yeah. yeah that sounds yeah. simple, except for they're changing the data. You know, they're buying things like there's transactions yeah. going. You you stand up the new version on green. Yeah. The blue's still running the main workload, so. It's continuing to get transactions while green's getting set up. Like, yeah. how do you actually get that into sync? And, and then you have to move the data. Over. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you, yeah, you have to move it. Uh, there are there are ways in SQL Server to move data to migrate it over to another to another server. Right. Typically, if you have problems with schema, you've written records to tables that may have the wrong schema. Yeah. Now they you have, have three fr- problems. Have <laughs> yeah, well, that's what makes going back the hard part. Right. right now, you're starting to write on the new schema. Decide you need to revert. Yeah. How do I get that data in the new schema back to the old? Do we lose exactly. a field? Do we? Yeah. So th- that's that's exactly another point. I would like to come back to that later. Okay, cool. That what kind of changes should you make? Right. And how you should make mm-hmm. them. So this blue-green deployment, having two copies and just switch them over and move the data between them is yeah. one way. Yeah. Another way is if you have that kind of application that benefits from having uh, uh, an architecture based on event law, event mm-hmm. sourcing. Right. Mm. Not no lo- not all applications do, of course, because a lot lot of overhead. But if you do, then all the new events that have happened in the system, you can just extract them and replay them on the new sk- on the new version of, of the application and the database. Right. Okay. So you basically take advantage of the fact that your application is going to Publish an event every time something meaningful happens. Yes. Yeah. Something that has side effects. And you like can keep a log of those events and then run exactly. them again on the new system. And the nice thing about event sourcing is that those events are sequential. Right. So you know exactly in which sequence these events have happened. So right. you can replay them in the same order. So your nice. presumption is that the same order number will be given to the same order in the yeah. event tree if we replayed on exactly. the old data. Exactly. So mm-hmm. these events build on top of each other. Right. One makes a change and the other one makes a change on top of the first right. one. And then you replay them in the same order and the same transformations should apply mm-hmm. yes. the same way. So that's another way. Anyway, deploying to production uh, has this pro- the problem of, of keeping data. Mm-hmm. Um, another problem is that when deployment fails, and we touched a little bit on it. What do you do when the deployment doesn't go well, which of course happens more often than not. Right. Um, then you basically have two ways of dealing with it. You can either roll back to a previous state. And that means either you restore from a backup, that if you if you are going to take a, back, a backup every time you deploy to the, the production. Right. Or you can simply take a previous version, because you're going to package the database in a, in a way that can be deployed. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about just packaging the schema. Packaging the schema the data. and data. Oh, okay. A reference data, of course, not test data. So reference mm-hmm. data, the data that must be there from yeah. for it to work. For right. example, if you have a categories table, right. you yeah, might have some, all the it. categories right. are in there. So that also must be part of the package. Yes. One, once you have a history of deployments, you're going to have a history of packages, each one with their own version. Yes. So what you do is to take the previous version and reapply it mm-hmm. 
on top of it. Mm-hmm. Mm. Right. And then now you're treating the database a lot like the app that you have a package you can go back to and restore the exactly. It's still the journal data that I'm worried about. It's yeah. the, the and then orders. it's the same as you did before. The same strategies apply to move the data that right. has been created in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Is there another way that you can maybe have two yeah. databases running at the same time, each one with the new schema, one with the old? Yeah, that's a lot of like blue-green Yeah, but instead of having to pick one or the other, you write to them both. You know, if you add new yeah, records. Yeah, that were yeah. like RAID, for example. Yeah. You write them in both ways. That could be, but that, that, that doesn't work out with the box. You have to build your application. Yeah, you have, you have to, to do, do that, that yourself, yeah. right. Yeah. And so that's rolling back. Another way to recover from failure is called rolling forward. Mm. Rolling forward means you basically fix the problem and deploy a new package. Right. And that eliminates all the recovery, the data recovery sure. problems. Because you don't have to roll back to anything. You just move. Keep moving forward. Keep moving forward. But and you may lose records that way, right? No, you don't change anything. You just, the database is in its bro- broken state. Oh, I see. You fix the problem in dev. And since you have a con- deployment pipeline that's automated, mm-hmm. it shouldn't be too hard to take a change from a developer's computer into production. Right? It should be an automated process. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So moving forward, ro- rolling forward is actually a better strategy that's made possible by the fact that you have a continuous deployment pipeline. Right. That you can just fix the problem and quickly get it into production automatically. Yeah. This is one of the aspects of this approach is you have such rapid deployments. There's no reason to go back. There is no the reason to go back. The amount of time exactly. it would take to go back, you can probably get this fixed and go forward. Exactly. Right. And now you're not writing to a schema that needs to be You, you know, don't have to reverted. deal with exactly. That needs to be reverted, exactly. et cetera. So yeah. that's, that's the preferred way of doing it. And, yeah. of course, as I said, it's possible because you have an automated process. If you mm-hmm. were to deploy things manually, that wouldn't be so easy. Yeah. Because if you're in the stress of knowing that you have an error in production, Mm. On and top that, of a manual process, the yeah. chances of making a mistake are really yeah, high. Yeah, then you have to fix it, and then you have to manually go through the steps, through the motions to get into production. Right. That's that's just crazy pants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dot com. <laughs> exactly. As I as I said, uh, as as Skynet w- will tell you, anything left to a human can't be trusted, right? Right. So that's why we want to automate uh, automated deployments. Yeah, you want a completely repeatable process. Yeah. And, and you got enough stress as it is dealing yeah. with those problems to not have to also deal with, are you following this 47-step process perfectly? Exactly. Yeah. So you have that. You have, you have no guarantee of consistency. Right. That's one. And another thing is that releases are scary because they are done seldom, right? right. They are done with many months in, in between yep. where lots of new changes have introduced and uncertainty is there too. So what do you do if something hurts? Well, depending on what the reason of, of the pain is, if something hurts, you should Stop do it more often. Right? doing it. Yeah, either, yeah. exactly. It depends. Yeah. If you are hitting yourself in the head with, with a hammer, it's st- just stop doing it. If you hit yourself harder and faster, it'll stop hurting. It was, exactly. You certainly won't care anymore. Exactly. But you know, I mean, you're totally with you. You've got the human condition of that hurts. Stop doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Or do you get really good at it so it doesn't hurt anymore? Exactly. Do it more often. Do it all the time mm-hmm. because then it will be less scary. Mm-hmm. But of course, if we have everything deployed manually, how could we do it all the time? Then we'll be just sitting all day clicking around and right. deploying stuff. Reminds me of a Zen Cohen. If you do something boring, do it more. <laughs> and if it's still boring, do it more until it's not boring anymore. I wish to. <laughs> if you ever get to that point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that, I don't know. That's- yeah. Yeah, but um, it's true. So, uh, and how do you make it all the time? You automate it first. That's right. step one, right? You automate it so that you can do it all the time. Mm-hmm. And once you make a release once a week, then release day to production, it's not scary anymore right, because sure. you've been doing it like 20 times during the sprint. Yeah, it's normal. So, exactly. So it takes away all this, all this. All how the, uh, do you automate database deployments? Yeah. And that's, uh, that's a very interesting question. Because mm-hmm. as we said in the beginning, we always talk about the deployment applications. So how, how about the relational database? It must be there. Mm-hmm. There are, there are four, four steps you can start with, basically. The first one is treat your database schema and data as source code. Right. Mm-hmm. So that means basically having a script that creates 
every scrivener object, tables, uh, constraints, indexes, store procedure functions, a script for everything. Which turns out you can make as text files. And exactly, which is mm -hmm. just text files, it's, just like source code. It is code. source. Yeah. Yeah. And you commit it to source control, and you version it, and you know exactly who made what change. You can yep. make diffs. You mm -hmm. can make diffs. Mm -hmm. So that's step number one. Step number two is be very deliberate in the kind of changes you make to your schema. Now, it's very easy to sit in a, in a design tool like you know, SQL Server Management Studio and just making changes to the tables, add the columns, remove columns. Yep, change this name, tweak change this, it. change data type here, yeah, da, 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 yeah. no big deal. But if you do that, you might introduce breaking changes. You might mm -hmm. introduce changes that make it impossible or really hard to, co to maintain data right. once yeah. you go to production. So I compare it to working on a minefield. Every step, every step you take should be a very deliberate step <laughs> in a very deliberate direction. Right. Mm -hmm. And you should always leave a trail of how you got there. Right. Yeah, that's right. So the minefield analogy was really, really well for me. I would ask the question, why are we walking through a minefield? Because <laughs> <laughs> we need to store the data. <laughs> why? We, I ask myself that question many times. <laughs> I wish I was a farmer sometimes. <laughs> Don't have to deal with these things. Yeah. Actually, I was talking to Udi Dahan yesterday about this, about this uh, fast-moving industry we're in and you know, new technologies introduced all the time. And uh, I told him, you know, sometimes I get really burned out and I wish I, wish, I wish I was in some business that doesn't move as, as quickly right. where you could actually top it off, know it all. Yeah, be somehow. there. Yeah. Ditch digging. <laughs> yeah, and I, I gave him the example of being a motorcycle mechanic. Yeah. Just because I have a friend of mine, he um, he recently took a degree to be an Harley Davidson uh, mechanic. Wow, cool. So he's very specialized in that, mm. and he works uh, repairing motorcycles. Mm -hmm. And I can safely say he knows everything about <laughs> there is to know about that. There is no new paradigm being introduced every second yeah. year. Mm -hmm. The idea is to relearn everything. You can mm -hmm. actually you know, go home and feel, I know it all yep. about yeah. my subject. Yeah, yeah. It's much harder to do in this industry, yes, right? Sure. Um, but Udi has uh, had the counterpoint that uh, all you need actually is discipline, not to be burned out. You just have to time box your, <laughs> right. <laughs> your learning. Yeah, it's, part, it's just part of the process. Yeah, exactly. So you need exactly why I want the minefield <laughs> from yeah. to begin with. Yeah, that's a good question. I guess it's the learning. So that's the second part. But it does mean you know when you talk about deliberate steps. What are the steps? We're not going. Do you basically avoid dropping columns at all costs? No, it means preferring changes that add stuff right to changes that delete stuff. Right. That's that's pretty common sense. But sometimes you actually need to move the schema into a different direction. Mm -hmm. Now, one way to do it is that do it a different, do it in a piecemeal way. So first, you add the new pieces. Right. You don't take anything away just yet. Yeah. One example is like if you have a one-to-many relationship between two tables, you're going to have a foreign key from table number two to table yep. number one. Let's say you want to refactor that or you want to evolve that model into to be a many-to-many -many relationship. Yeah, so you can stick another table between the two. Yeah, so you stick another table that has two references, yep. but you don't remove the foreign key okay. the, of the original one just yet. Okay. You just add the new pieces and maybe you do some a query that extracts the data from the second table right. populates the many -to -many and populates table. the mapping table. Right. Now now you have scripts that, makes, that make that transition, that make that migration. Yep. You deploy your database, the new schema, but you don't change the application, which is another point I want to come back later to, which is decoupling the deployment of the database from the de deployment of the application. Sure. Mm -hmm. Do not deploy them as a whole, just deploy them one at a time. So deploy the new schema and don't change the application. Try it out. Keep, see. Make things still, work, still running. Exactly. Make sure that you haven't introduced any Break changes that break the existing version of the app out, right. out. And once you know that the new schema is working, then you move the application pieces that maybe take advantage of the right. new relationship. Mm -hmm. And after that is being done, then you can take away the old parts. Right. Then you can drop the column. So two database deploys for every app deploy. A pre-app deploy database change. Exactly. Then you do your day app deploy, and then a post-app deploy. Change. Exactly. That's exactly right. how the comment you read in the beginning. Yeah, right. Exactly. We were talking about exactly this process. The clean up step.
that's only possible if you decouple the the the, the, the deployment of the, of the database from the one of the app. Because if you deploy them as a as a package, that's kind of hard to do because then you're moving the application forward and the database forward right. at the same I mean, time. I do like the idea of having a complete package that this is the schema and uh, reference data for this version of the application. But when yep. you actually go to the deployment model, it's you take the schema out, yep. you generate scripts against the existing database to make it, you know, build your change script for that, and you run that first, and then have a modified version of the database. It doesn't exactly. match the schema that's actually in there. It's exactly. a transition schema. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then do your de- do your app deploy, and then you can do the cleanup phase, which is yep. now I can actually make the schema look like the schema that's supposed to be in that yep. package because I've no longer got those dependencies. Yep. Now, if right. you want to move them at the same time as you said, there is another way you can do it. You can also move them at the same time if you want, but you can have a configuration settings in the application mm-hmm. that tells which version of the schema does this app. Are we depending on? Right. Depending on. Brilliant. Just like software. Yeah. yeah. Give it a version number. Exactly. And then you can just have like feature toggle. Do you want to enable this feature or not? Right. Based on which version of the schema is. And that's a huge discussion all by itself, this, this dashboard of settings for apps. Exactly. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? Must be that happy time again. You bet. Time to roll back our steps through the terra firma of intelligent discourse and roll forward into the minefield. <laughs> Was that a minefield or a mine? A minefield. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe it is a minefield. Minefield. Yeah, the field of the mind. It's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from DevExpress to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. Awesome, dude. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Clay McKinney. Congratulations, Clay. Golf clap for you, sir. Clay just won a DevExpress D-Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from them. Hey, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, Answer a few questions and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show we like to give away sponsor stuff. And every December we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Just like we just did. Just like we just did. And we like to ask our guest, Enrico, if you had 5000 US to spend on technology today, what would you buy? It's a tough one, but uh, I know what I would buy. Uh, I will buy a Macintosh from 1984 in its original packaging. You're the second person. A vintage Mac, an original 1984 Mac. That's uh, on eBay right now, starting price (laughs) $4,000. Wow. It was was three grand, I think, when it was new. I mean, it was very expensive. It is. The particular thing with this piece is that it has all the original packaging, including manual and cassette tapes with instructions and... Apparently, it's one of the first batches of Macintosh, which wow. means on the inside of the case, there are the signature of the Macintosh team, wow. including Steve Jobs. Wow, that's great. So this is a piece of history, and it's working. So wow. they have pictures where the screen is turned on and the um, Mac Paint is on. So you I mean, can... that's a 30-year-old computer, yeah. right? Working condition, uh, all the packaging, and Steve Jobs' signature on the inside of the wow. case. What would you do with it? Would you just put it on a... Sta- uh, I don't know. I will stare at it? I will do pretty much like I do with my keyboard. I uh, I'm into uh, vintage keyboards, mechanical mm-hmm. keyboards. Original IBM's. Oh, I have those. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I just got myself a Logitech M710, mm. which is a got the full mechanical stroke on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It just gives me chills when I type on that's that keyboard. That's uh, Cherry. That's Cherry MX Brown. Yeah. Switches on that one. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, the Cherry switches. So that's what we, I will get. Yeah, because my wife won't let me buy it otherwise. <laughs> Well, you know, as an investment, it's probably a good thing. I disagree. You don't think so? Computers disintegrate when they get really old. I kept my TRS-80 Model 1 alive for years and years. 
the case started falling apart. Traces started falling off the board. Mm-hmm. I eventually put it like in a hermetically sealed box or something. And uh, yeah, this case, yeah. case, right? Yeah. I ended up putting it in a big uh, S100 chassis case, so it had a lot of room. Yeah. Spread it out, and I was repairing individual traces to keep the machine running. Wow. And I had a girlfriend come over. Amazing, I had a girlfriend when I had crap like that in my yeah, room. Right. She's like, "Hey, it looked like R- looks like R2D2 threw up in this case, but oh, uh, oh, it man. kept it limping along. But they had, it'll eventually, like literally." The plastic that makes up the motherboard starts to disintegrate, and it, mm. it'll pull apart. And then the discs are mag- magnetic too; that they, they might lose. They won't. Uh, sure. Yeah, they're no. they're done. In but the I end, mean, but you're having, storing data on rust. But having something, whether it works or not, an original thing. I mean, yeah, you know, it could be worth because of the signatures, right? Because I yeah, it's, um, it's a chassis. Yeah, I read the uh, Steve Jobs uh, biography by um, Bill Watterson. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. his name. Yeah, sure. And he's actually mentioned in the book. That the first batch of Macintosh from 1984 had the signatures of the entire team, which was about 10 people or 15 people, and you wonder how on the inside of, of the case. They are thrown away. Like yeah, they're, and they're, wh- one of those, in, yeah. Ah, nobody yeah. knows. Yeah. But, uh, we know there's one of those original machines in the Computer History Museum in Palo Alto. That's right. We yeah. went and visited. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, that's a, that's a cool thing, man. Nice. But I think you'd, you'd, it'd end up just being a piece of art. In, yeah. in the room with well, a light I, on it. I still have my Model 4 TRS-80. Yeah, I wonder so. if it will power up still. I don't know. I yeah. wonder if those discs have uh, they, they won't be. molded over. And, yeah. yeah. However, but, I do have uh, an Apple extended keyboard for 1989. Wow. <laughs> Actually, I have two. <laughs> wow. One in the original box and one uh, refurbished. Yeah. I also have a PCXT with uh, an old Voyetra card, MIDI card, uh, with the software for the libraries of my M1 that I have all the drum mappings and stuff. Wow. And one of these days I'm going to get the, uh, get up the courage to fire that thing up. It's not going to start. Yeah. Those fans are all seized. Like, you know. You think? Absolutely. Well, I'll let you know what happens. I've lived a I'll lot of over the hardware back to life. So we're trying to it. Yeah, yeah, I'll do it over the holidays. Yeah. There's a, there's a pastime. All right. Well, anyway. Yeah. So we've talked about uh, strategies for dealing with data and change and then deploying. Yeah databases what's next we got to the point where you have to be very very deliberate about your changes yeah right and uh, version your schema yeah right? give it a give it a number like you give a number to your application version would it just be in sync with the application version you keep them packaged together no that's that's you can do that of course yeah. uh, i'm a big proponent of Moving those to a different pa- different paces, okay. basically, because the data is not going to change as often as the app does. I mean, that's that's the reality. No, I hope anyway. I, I want to be able to see if you have a tool like Octopus Deploy, for example. Right. You have a dashboard that shows you which version of each package is deployed in every environment. Right. Now, what I usually do is that I have two different projects in my deployment tool: one for the app right. and one for the database. And once I look at the dashboard, I can see version 3 of the app is deployed in test. Version 2 of the schema is sure. deployed in test. They work yeah. because I run acceptance tests on both. Yeah. And then when I move to the next, let's say, staging or a user acceptance test environment, hmm. then I can move one first, move the database first, see that it works with the previous version of the application, say version 1, and then move the application over. So I want to move them independently of each other. Mm-hmm. You know what? Now that I think about it, it makes total sense to me that you keep all those version numbers separate because it's very easy to get in a situation where you want to rev phones independently of the back end. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, exactly. I've dealt with you know some fairly distributed apps where individual services are in it end up being versioned separately as well. So it's like real life has multiple version numbers in it when you talk about the exactly. overall application. It's exactly. not, not that big a deal to just keep them all separate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and give it a version number and be and be very aware of which version yes. is is where right Diligent now. Diligent with it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And the last part is having having a recovery status, and we talked about that in, be, in the yeah. beginning. Choose how. Way. Yeah. Are you going to roll back? Are you going to roll r- move forward? Mm-hmm. And if you're going to roll roll back, how are you going to restore data? Yeah. Backups, blue green deployments, events. Right keep those things moving along so those yeah. are interesting rules how how do they pan out in real life yeah you know what uh, what's been your experience so getting the database into source control that's the easy part if you have an existing app with a database you can basically easily generate scripts for all that and mm-hmm. have a starting point and commit that into source control right then how do you deal with changes there are two ways basically you can do that there are two models out there that have been proven and established. One is called the state-based model. The other one is called transformation-based model. Now, let's talk about state-based model first. 
what it does is that you, your script file that you have in source control, they represent a snapshot of your schema as it is right now. Right. So those, to be, to be more concrete, those are create scripts. They are create table, create constraint, right. create procedure. They represent the schema as it is right now. Now, how do you handle deployments then? Then you have a tool, third-party tool. Right. You feed it the state you have with all your scripts. It's going to compare that with the destination schema, like you described before, Richard. And it's going to figure out the differences between the two and generate... Generate modify statement. A modify script on the fly, apply that into the destination database, and now you have them in sync. Yeah. And what what tool do you use for this? Do you have so I've favorites? used I used a different I've I use different tools. Okay. I've used, I've started out with the uh, Visual Studio database project, yes. which was introduced in two thousand and eight. Yeah, it was called the Team Foundation for Database Professionals. Yeah, so we had terrible names. Yeah. The, the original code name was Data Dude. Yeah, Data and Data I like that name the best. Exactly. Even if we weren't allowed to say it anymore. Exactly. You know, but yeah, that was the best name. Data Dude was very the Data cool. Data Dude. That's and nobody where I ever started. used it. Well, I used it. Okay, so it's just like you and me, man. Like, there's nobody else. <laughs> I used it a lot yeah. in uh, customer c- clients' pro- uh, projects, absolutely. I think well, a lot of devs thought it was a, a, D, a DBA tool. Well, well, it really wasn't. It was really a... Yeah, it's sort of it in between. It's sort of in between, yeah. right? The, it was a, a kind of a blur because it integrated into Visual Studio, mm-hmm. which is not what DBAs usually right. use. They usually use SQL Server Management Studio if you are right. into SQL Server. Which is actually the same shell as... Yeah. Visual Studio, but they still didn't go for it. Yeah. There was always this hope that the people would actually do this. Yeah. I dealt with an organization where the DBA would have nothing to do with any of that stuff. Wow. He wanted to control his, his life was change scripts, right? He owned mm-hmm. the change scripts. Yeah. And so and the, the database guys are really frustrated because it's very hard to get any changes done. Oh, and he's like, well, if you want to make your own change scripts, you just let me know. So we whipped out data dude and we generate the change script and then we'd send it to him. And what did he say? <laughs> and then he's looking. You know, the, it makes a really serious script. Yeah, right? yeah. It does a lot of validation. It's very careful. Yeah, it yeah. makes very long scripts. Yeah. But it was, and and so then what he start doing is says, well, every time we do a build now, and they were working towards continuous integration, we'll just send you a script, five scripts a day. Yeah. Keep that guy manually. Busy. Send them manually, like yeah. emailing. Yeah, they would because there was a flag you could set where it generated generated as a file, and they just <laughs> include that in an email with, "Yeah, we did another build. Here's an updated script for you to review." Uh, I just okay. buried this guy. So passive aggressive. <laughs> well, no, it was aggressive aggressive. <laughs> yes. Actually, it's, it's aggressive aggressive. Quite active, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you know the. The thing it sort of pressed upon him is that thing you're defending that you crafted so carefully. Yeah, yeah we have a tool for that. Yeah, right. And we can make it better than yours. Yeah, and you're right when you, you say those have tools been replaced yeah. <laughs> by a machine. <laughs> well, yeah. so, but it's just like don't hang so your bad. existence on this thing. Right. A DBA has so many more talents than that. Yeah. Stuff that's way more important than that. Sure, like exactly. actually understanding what safe changes are. You know, taking the right steps to the minefield. Exactly. Not a trivial thing. Right. No. And those tools, as you said, are careful. They're not just going to sh- sh- over all your data. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly right. This was the yeah. biggest thing we did with yeah. DataDo was let's do everything stupid. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's going to stop. Yeah. Let's drop a column. Let's do all this stuff and then watch what it did. Yeah. And every time it was a risk of data, it would, ra- it would raise an error and stop. Yeah, I'm not doing that. Sorry. Exactly. If you want to do that, you can do that manually, right? Mm-hmm. Although nowadays there is a flag that's continue on error. Yes. Which is kind of on error resume yes. next. Please yeah. smash my data. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's you good. Be- those errors, just ignore that. Exactly. Yeah. No, but it, it, it works because if you're deploying to a test environment, then you don't care if you lose data. Yes. Yeah. Just remember to turn it off before you go to the production exactly. environment. And a little checkbox. The other one I've played with a lot is Redgate SQL Compare. Yeah. Yes, and I've used it too. Yeah. Uh, SQL Compare, and now they actually have... Um, so SQL Compare is a GUI yeah. tool that you use, mm-hmm. but they, as I understand it, they built a new tool which is using SQL Compare internally. That's called SQL CI. Mm-hmm. That uh, is basically a set of command line tools that invoke right. um, so it's SQL scriptable. Compare. Yeah, so you can include it into your uh, delivery pipeline. Nice. Mm-hmm. So Team City, Octopus Deploy, whatever, build server you have. You can right. just invoke them. Isn't there some PowerShell tool that uh, that does this? And it's not Redgate, but some somebody else. Uh, I'm not sure if there is a PowerShell tool, but there is an, another product in this category of state-based um, migration tool. It's called Ready Roll. Ready Roll. Yeah, and that integrates both with Visual Studio and with SQL Management mm-hmm. Studio, hmm. and it allows you to both 
make changes and will record the changes you make visually mm. and create scripts underneath that you can then commit to source control. Right. Mm. Or you can write them by hand. Wow. I haven't tried it myself, but I know that there is, there is a, this option as well. Okay. Um, well, it just speaks to this more and more tools to make this simpler. Yeah. And, uh, we, we said before, th- those tools are, um, they're gonna, yeah, I wanted to say this. Those two, depending on the changes you make, those m- might be changes that don't allow you to keep the data. And right. the tools will flag for that once you deploy, right? Yeah. Now, one, one very concrete example about that is, if you're going to add a column, <laughs> there are two subtle differences. You can add a column in the middle of the table, or you can append it at the end. Mm. Right. Now, if you add a column in the middle during while you do it visually, mm-hmm. then this this tool, uh, these tools that do the deployment, they can't keep the data because if you add a column in the middle, they have to drop the table and recreate it. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that creates potentially data loss. Sure. If you append a column at the end, then they can just generate an alter table statement mm-hmm. and an add column. Mm. So the changes you make. Even if it's a simple change as adding a column, where you do it means the difference between having a destructive change or an additive change. Right. So another approach to this is instead of having the state and having a tool generate a a transformation script on the fly, let's just write those scripts ourselves. Right. Let's call the transformation-based approach. Mm. So the difference here is that all your scripts... They don't represent the state of your database right now. Mm-hmm. Instead, each script represents a transformation from one state to another. Mm. So you have a series of scripts that are alter scripts. They're not create scripts. Right. Apart from the first one, of course. And you give them an, a sequential number. So you say, this is script number two, this is number three, number four. And you can just build upon those transformations because you know that the column you're referencing in this script has been created by the previous one. Right. So you basically have a journal of transformation in different scripts. Now, how do you do deployments then? You basically feed them a library or some kind of small framework that will basically just take Mm -hmm. those scripts, look at the destination schema, determine which scripts have not been run, and run them in the exact order as you have intended based on the sequential number. Hmm. Now, this approach works really well if you have a schema that's fast, fast moving. Like right. if you are in a new project, you're going to evolve your schema rapidly yeah. and making drastic changes. Sure. Yes. Early version. Early versions. And maybe you don't even have something deployed in production yet. Maybe you're just deploying to test right. environments. So you, you don't have to, you don't have to care about rolling back. It's just right. rolling forward. We're always going to yeah. go forward. Yeah. For broken for a little while, not a big deal. Yeah. So, Having this kind of control where you write scripts that make one transition at a time yeah. and having them in, in, a, in a sequence gives you that, that it's like being on a lower level. It's like being closer to the schema. Sure. It's very much continuous deployment now. You don't have a declared version. Exactly. It's sort of where are we in the, in the spectrum Exactly. Of it's the difference between the declarative state-based model where you right. say, here is my database, here is the destination, now sync them. Yeah, get there. Yeah. And having, this is how I want you to move my schema forward. Right. With these scripts in this order. Uh, so that works really well if you're a fa- you have a, if you have a schema that's changing fast. Right. And if you want that kind of control. Where you don't let a tool generate the, right. the migrations, you do them yourself. So, I mean, again, it's like uh, there's a world for an anal DBA. Uh, right. Absolutely. If he wants to live like that and manage these incrementally, it can be done. Yeah, absolutely. And, and still use source control, have a trail, like all of those things are still important. Yeah. But uh, it, it's up to the style you want. You know, one of the things that's happened to me more and more in dealing with cloud deployments, especially large-scale websites and so forth, is I don't update anything anymore. We just build a new cluster of machines with the new version on it. I'm wondering if we could do, when you talk about cloud-based databases, like is that even practical? Or is it just too costly to move the data around? You're talking about relational database, right? Yeah. You know, now, the SQL time, Azures of the world. Uh, last time I checked, having a relational database in the cloud is, is, an, ex- is an expensive story. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very expensive story. So I guess you can do it, of course. Yeah. 
but as you described, the deploying just a new cluster, it sounds a lot like blue-green deployment. Yes. Where and you basically you, deploy a new cluster. at some point, you tear the old cluster down. Right? Exactly. And that was really, the, the mindset was, you know, where you, you know where you are, you know where you want to be. Why migrate when you can simply build where you want to be and switch? Yeah, and, and then the move the data. The problem over. for me is the amount of data. Yeah, and then move the data. Over. Yeah, and it, I mean, it may not be practical to move that much data no. around. But speaking about this uh, approach to change, I've noticed that um, programmers tend to prefer the closer, uh, the, the more control you get by having the transformations written yourself. Right. Uh, and also, if you have this kind of project that move fast, the state-based model uh, works if you have a schema that's relatively stable. Right. Uh, where you make small changes, not very distracting ones, or like I work in some projects where the schema or the tables is basically set, all that's changing are the store procedures. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you have that kind of scenario, then using a state-based model where you're just deploying new version of the store procedures yeah. mm-hmm. and small changes to the schema, then having it sync automatically is that's much better than having to write deal. each script by, by its own. Right? Yeah. So. I would like to cycle back to one thing you said earlier in the show that we could sort of explore as another way to generally manage databases, which is this event model. Yes. And and I almost think of it as, as a queued model that... You, your, your orders are coming in as, as queue messages, and then you're deploying it essentially to a database. You're, you're actually propagating it. And so you could keep all those records, all of those events, and replay them on multiple databases, be able to roll back, go forward. Like this idea that you could do the, the, the red green or the blue green and just be writing them to both databases and then having two different apps to decide which one you're oh, actually going to look at, but the data will always be in sync. But that, to me, seems very architectural that you would have to build the software that way. Yeah, of course, yes. You have to plan ahead. If, if that's the approach you want, that's, that's awesome. That's great. But it's also when I think about businesses that I've worked in where every minute of downtime is money, right? And so, this is, so it's worth architecting a model that just has no chance of downtime. You don't actually care when the data gets written to the database. You just care that you never lose data. And that journalistic model where we take the order in its raw form and store it and then deploy it to the database asynchronously, yeah. I think that's very compelling for that sort of infinitely sustainable model. Absolutely. And there is, uh, now that there is a lot of conversations going about uh, service-oriented architectures again. Right. Right. Uh, however, these days they're called microservices. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which is a whole discussion about. Yeah, no, no, we've yeah, done right. a couple of microservices <laughs> show. It's uh, a thing. Itself, yeah. But to me, as I was, uh, I was, I, I was deeply into service-oriented architectures back in 2005 and 2006 when right. it came out. However, we had SOAP back then. Right. <laughs> as a <the> standard. <laughs> Right. So it didn't really fly. Yes. <laughs> Nowadays we have Node.js. Yeah. <laughs> and a little lighter. It, it's a little lighter. So it's a, there is a different, there is a new chance to implement it. All right. But now that we talk about these microservice architectures where you have a message bus in the middle. Yes. And you have those events that are being published to the bus. Right. This order has come in. This customer has changed their address field. Yes. These are all events coming into the bus. And then you have services that are subscribing that you have the published subscriber architecture. Yes to those messages and persisting those changes. Right. And so you could have multiple databases persisting changes to different schemas. Exactly. No. And also that message bus could be backed by queues, yep. persistent queues. Yes. And back and we could be backed up by a graph database of some kind. Exactly. So that you have a permanent store of the chronology of, of all happened. of those messages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So once mm-hmm. you migrate the database, if you want to replay everything that's happened between the last deploy and the new deploy, you can just republish the events right. From the persistent right. queue. Well, part of me, and I've spent enough time in the banking industry too, that we always want a copy of the truth. So this idea that in a trail. I want to store the object as the object was written at the time and never change it. Right. Relational databases fundamentally disturb the data because we try and normalize it for analytical purposes, for but reporting purposes. Yeah. So having that you, store in, in an accounting system, for example, when you make a change, you you don't you, make a change. You no, no, create no, a no, never. It's a journal. Yeah, of course. You, yeah. yeah, it's a journal. So what right. if we use the, uh, the the object database, the graph database, as that serial store? It's only insert, never anything else, just know. insert. Yeah. That is the ultimate copy of the truth. Which means as we update the app. 
the actual object itself is going to be different. You know, you're going to have, you know, three months ago, the objects look like this. And then we updated. So the objects actually look different. Still stored in the same data- database doesn't care, right? That, that, no, that, that graph database doesn't care less. We have all these tricks we do inside the relational mm-hmm. database to decompose those variations on mm-hmm. the object into relatable data. Yeah. But the source of the truth is the journal. Exactly. Not the database. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very interesting point what that they brought up because I used to say that much in the same way as uh, HTML, now let's face it, HTML was never designed to no. make application no. UIs. It was made for a document, a document format and linked through document. Yes. And by the same token, the relational model, when it was designed in the 70s, it wasn't designed to be flexible and easy to change. Yeah. It was designed to give you all the tools you need to guarantee data in- integrity. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what it was designed to be and what it still is. Yeah. All these things we are doing, right? Like you said, rec- uh, never delete anything, make a journal, yeah. have events that represent changes. So you might have a create event, you have a delete event, which mm. ne- never deletes anything, mm, but yeah. it's a record that this has been logically deleted yeah. Yeah. or a soft delete. Those are all workarounds that we must put in place in order to work in this new world where we are right now yes. of highly available services and still keep the relational model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. yeah, we are because covering the, up the relational model's yeah, problems. Mm-hmm. Because we need the data integrity. We need, yeah. it's, a, you know, it's a trusty model. It has been proven over and over. It has all the features you need to guarantee data integrity so we can't abandon it yeah, really. Sure. You know, but we need to work around the limitations. So then we build those architectures around the relational model to work it with it in a different way. Right. All right. Well, we're just about out of time. Is there anything else you want to mention? Resources you want to point us to? Or yes, absolutely. There are a couple of. There is. There isn't much literature out out there uh, about continuous delivery of databases. However, there are a couple of books that I would recommend. One is uh, called Continuous Delivery. The Jez Humble's book. Jez Humble's book, yep. exactly. And uh, it's by the Martin Fowler series. Yep. Sure. And that's a book entirely on continuous delivery, but it has a chapter about, specifically about data management okay. in uh, continuous delivery. And then there is another book called Refactoring Databases. Yeah, right. That's from 2006. Uh, Scott Ambler, who we've had on the show. Yeah. And uh, Pramod Satellite. Yeah. So that book is before the continuous delivery era. Sure. But all the patterns that are described on how to evolve the schema through time and make changes in a deliberate way awesome. are described in that book. Great. Cool. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been great talking to you. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a